some of the mo most memorable and interesting times of, in my life of being a priest have occurred when I've worn my clericals to the grocery store. <laughs> Invariably, I'm just running in for about 10 minutes to get a couple of things and intend for it to be a quick trip. But there is a conversation that often ensues in the checkout line. On one occasion, a woman said to me, as I was placing the items from my basket on the conveyor belt, something about how she goes to church, although I didn't recognize her from any place that I had served, and her husband doesn't because he doesn't like it that at church all they do is talk about sin. And then she proceeded to tell me the reasoning that they debated as I placed my items and they continued down the conveyor belt about whether or not we are sinners and what sin means. And the clerk asked for my grocery card and she pondered what sin is as he told me to swipe my payment method. And I found myself in that moment wanting to say, just a minute, everything needs to stop because we have to finish this conversation about sin. So I'm going to finish it here in this homily. This woman's husband is not the first person that I've heard of that has given up on Christianity because of its emphasis on sin. I know of others, not by name, but by illustration, who have chosen to be just humanitarians or Buddhists or maybe even agnostics simply because they feel that it doesn't convict them of wrongdoing from the get-go. But what is sin? The word in scripture is often interpreted and translated as missing the mark. What mark are we aiming for? Is the mark defined by our Judeo-Christian perspective? If so, it would follow then that our sinfulness is only as real as the ideal that we have for ourselves. And if the ideal is created through our Christian perspective, then it would follow this man's reasoning that we're only sinners because of our goal. Thus, if you're not a Christian, then you're not a sinner. However, there is something that's just not right, whether you have a Christian worldview or not. Why doesn't following the golden rule, the rule that says do unto others as you would have them do unto you, why doesn't that just make everything better in this world? The fact that most people strive to follow this rule, and yet hurt and wrongdoing are still very much a part of everyone's lives, makes me wonder how to address whatever it is that isn't right. What name do we put on it? Marcus Borg, in his book, The Heart of Christianity, dedicates an entire chapter to breaking open what we mean by the word sin. Looking at the stories of scripture, he suggests that there are metaphors that can help us identify what isn't right and thus hear how it is that God tends to that very not right part of life. For example, he highlights blindness, being in exile, being in bondage, having a closed heart, being hungry and thirsty, being lost. Let's consider blindness for a moment. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a psychiatrist many years ago 
who talked about rose-colored glasses. And he was sharing with me his revelation that when someone wears rose-colored glasses, it isn't that they see everything in the world in a rosy hue, but instead they only pick up in their vision those very things that are rose-colored. They're blind to all the rest. As one who has often seen things through rose-colored glasses, I was intrigued by this concept and began to wonder, if I make decision based on my rose-colored observations, how ill-informed might I be in making my decision? I've tried to learn how to see things through other people's lenses. How do you see the world? If you don't notice something, is it simply a mistake? Or do, is it a result of willfully overlooking it, hoping that it'll go away? When Paul talks about encountering Christ on the road to Damascus, as we read in Acts, he was blind for several days. And during those days, he had experiences that changed the way that he saw all things. Not only did his vision return, but his new view of everything after encountering Christ could only be described by him as scales falling from his eyes. And what about exile? Have you ever wanted a home so badly that it hurt? Have you ever wanted a place where you were known and loved for who you are? A place that gave you your identity and you liked the identity it gave you? In John's Gospel, as Jesus prepares his disciples for his certain departure, he tells them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not tell you. I, I tell you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. St. Augustine said it in one line, My heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And let's consider bondage. Has there been an addiction that you've battled? Or a life experience that was so painful that it still holds you in captivity? Perhaps a debilitating phrase runs through your head repeatedly. Or maybe you have an illness that seems to limit your capacity for engaging the world. These can all be ways that we can be bound or trapped. It is only the experience of the liberating power of God in Christ that frees us. Remember the man with the demons, as we read in Mark 5, or the raising of Lazarus, as we read in John 11? The man with the demons had to be shackled because of his violence. And when Lazarus emerges from the tomb, wrapped in grave cloths, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And what about a closed or a hardened heart? Have you ever had to steel yourself for a difficult conversation? Or been hurt to such an extent that you've set your mind to never be hurt that way again? Well, the psalmist reminds us, of God's ability to change that. 
Create in me a clean heart, the psalmist writes, and renew a right spirit within me. Perhaps you've been hungry or thirsty, maybe for love or for knowledge or experience or recognition, and you've reached for the nearest thing that promised to satisfy your hunger or thirst. Maybe you found yourself unsatisfied, insatiable, and you continued to consume whatever promised to satisfy your hunger or thirst. And at least for a while, it did. Maybe you remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well who encountered Jesus, a story that you can read about in John 4. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Or maybe you know what it means to be lost. People in grief or the darkness of temporary or lifelong illness, or even in a time of intense searching for an answer, know what it is to be lost. And it is our gospel lesson today that reminds us of God's action to find us. God searches us out like one sheep that is missing from the flock, or the one coin that is lost in the house. Do you think the sheep knew that it was lost? Did the coin realize that it wasn't with the others? Or that, did they discover that they were lost when they heard the familiar voice of the shepherd? Or felt the gentle hand of the peasant woman? The ability to be found rests in our receptivity to the one who seeks us. So Borg has listed these as sins blindness, being in exile, being in bondage, having a closed heart, being hungry or thirsty, being lost. He goes on to say, and I quote, many of these are not simply, or maybe not at all, the result of our deeds. Estrangement, the birth of the separated self, is the natural result of growing up. It cannot be avoided. For the same reason we develop closed hearts, a shell around the self. There is a sense in which we are blinded by the imprinting of culture on our psyches and our perceptions. In a sense, we fall into bondage through no fault of our own. It's the inevitable result of growing up. End quote. This is why we baptize infants, because we know that they are going to grow up. And we want them to know Christ throughout their lives so that when the inevitable wrongs of life happen, they'll know that Christ is present to attend to them, changing, transforming the wrongs into actual means of knowing God's grace and love in a very real way. In our hymnal, in the section entitled Christian Life, 
There is a hymn that is shared across cultures in our country. It is so familiar and powerful that even the non-religious give it due respect when it is played or sung. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. This grace was first made known in Jesus, and it is in Christ that this grace is still made known. Amen.